Hello, book lovers, and welcome to the first vintage podcast of 2017. This month, we're all about the classics. Happy New Year, Alex. Happy New Year, Will. Did you have a good one? I had a very good one and I read an awful lot of books. However, nothing as to the avalanche that started coming through my door. I know this is always difficult when you work in publishing and you're basically owning up to the fact that you get an endless supply of free books Poor and you. then sort of slightly yeah. complaining about where to put them all. <laughs> I realise how spoiled that sounds, listeners, and I'm very, very sorry. Um, but they really have been coming. It's, a, it's really got off to an amazing start, hasn't There's it? There's an awful year? lot going on and it's very exciting. I'm very excited about 2017. I've got a good feeling. Uh, about some of the books that we're publishing, but also other people as well. Um, but yeah, I had a good New Year. Uh, I didn't get to read as much as I wanted. I watched quite a lot of telly, which is what you're supposed to do over Christmas, isn't it? And, you know, well, indulge so. and eat and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. We should say, though, of course, just, just at the very end of last year, the Vintage Podcast was picked by The Guardian as one of 2016's best. Yeah, but what did they say? They said it was fascinating and pleasingly brief. Yeah. It's I one of my better it's all, reviews. It's all sort of glass half full, half empty. <laughs> I sort think that's of thing. good. And it being dry January, my glass is fairly empty, so maybe yeah. I'm feeling a little sour, but the pleasingly brief just, just you know, that's the bit I'm focusing on. Okay, well... They're just saying, don't go on, guys. Don't go on. So we should probably, <laughs> should we crack on? Well, yes. The new year, of course, is a time for fresh starts and new ideas, isn't it? It certainly is. Uh, it's, uh, it's always worth looking back, of course, to remind ourselves of how we got here. So this month, what we'll be doing is we're going to be revisiting the brilliant Angela Carter with her biographer, Edmund Gordon, discovering why Anne was the most radical Bronte of them all with Samantha Ellis. But first, we're starting with the heavyweights, aren't we, in all senses of the word? Yes, we are. We're, re- we're we're really going back. Having said how many great new books there are, uh, it is always important not to forget the enormous backlist because at some point in your life, once again to sound the note of doom, you will realise that you cannot read everything in this short span we are allotted. And so you simply must make sure that things that you really always wanted to read, you get on with. Um, this year is the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And to celebrate, Vintage are publishing six Russian masterpieces that have survived controversy, censorship and suppression to influence decades of thought and artistic expression. They span 100 years of Russian history, from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace to Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. They have a very nice line in titles, didn't they, the Russians, or at least yeah. their translators. The series coincides with the blockbuster exhibition Revolution, Russian Art, 1917 to 1932, which runs at the Royal Academy in London from the 11th of February to the 17th of April. However, we are all about the books, so to help me tackle these beasts, I am joined by Robert Chandler, the translator of the vintage classics edition of of Life and Fate, and also many other uh, translations from Russian, which include Alexander Pushkin's The Captain's Daughter, many works by Andrei Platonov, and Cathy Rensenbrink, journalist and author, grew up in Yorkshire, lives in London. Her best-selling memoir, The Last Act of Love, was published in 2015, and her next book, A Manual for Heartache, will be published this June. She also happens to be a big fan of Russian literature. Welcome, Robert and Cathy. So, here we are, gathered to talk about the Russians. It's interesting that we are sort of expecting snow, so that immediately brings to mind Russia. Um, however, we are bombarded with Russian things at the minute because, as, as I was mentioning earlier, there is the, cent- the big centenary, but also because we are aware of... Um, 
what we might call a sort of delicate relationship between Russia and the West, uh, we perhaps might take that as a cue to retreat to the past and to talk about the great Russian novelists. Cathy, if I can just start with you. You are a file. You told me you are not an expert, but you are a Russian file. Tell us why. Yes, I like long novels about adultery <laughs> and disappointing <laughs> love affairs. So it don't I, have to be Russian, of course. But... <laughs> they don't have to be Russian, but that's my sort of area of interest. Um, I'm just utterly obsessed with Anna Karenina. I've been toying with trying to rewrite it for years which I don't think I'll ever get around to, but just as an exercise, it's very interesting. And it actually also shows you how contemporary and relevant it is because it it would be quite easy to do. I have the whole beginning bit blocked out and how it would transfer to a modern context. Though I still don't know what job I would give Vronsky, actually, because the military thing is tricky. But um, You'd have to be a PR man. Everybody is. Well, I was wondering about that. I was thinking about actors. Uh, sometimes I think I should set it in publishing. Um <laughs> You know, it's it's sort of like an endlessly enjoyable game for me. But one of the things I like about Russian literature, actually, is I think love affairs are taken really seriously in Russian literature. And I find that quite interesting. So I think often love affairs are seen as a bit domestic. And trivial. And trivial. And not the meat and drink of big, weighty books written by men about men. Whereas often these men really care about their love affairs. It's interesting, Robert, you were saying, um, as we were just chatting a little while ago, that actually perhaps people do have the wrong idea about these great big 19th century Russian novels and think that they're terribly serious, think that they don't have humour in them, perhaps don't have love affairs, don't have parties, and of course they do, don't they? Um, very much so, and I mean that's particularly applicable probably to Dostoevsky, who people think of as being so serious, but um, he is often hilariously funny. And actually keying um, into that that humour and making it come alive for people, not only reading in a different language, obviously that's what you're doing, but also at a totally different time and in a totally different society. How do you set about that? Um, I don't think there's any sort of magic formula. I mean, you just have to recognise that... Humour is hard to translate. And um, actually, I realise that most comedy, comedy writers for things like television do very, very often write in, in pairs. And it does seem quite difficult to sort of generate humour on one's own. So um, I do work very, very closely with my wife, and it probably is essential for um, certainly the more difficult so you're able to sort of try, well, able try to stuff just, out on you know, we just, well, It's not a matter of trying stuff out. It's we come out with it together. You know, it's, There's a sort of joke that is maybe just beginning to work and she'll improve it a little bit and that'll give me an idea and I'll improve it a little bit and then she'll improve it a bit more. And, this sounds very you know, jolly, then, then actually. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it can be fun, certainly. Um, Cathy, when did you first uh, come into this, this, uh, this world? When did you first start reading these kinds of books these big tub thumping love affairs i think i think probably my first one was uh, i think i probably started off with madame bovary and then i think someone i think i was at university probably in my first year and i think someone said you know oh if you it, once you've read madame bovary you have to read anna karenina and, and then it, it sort of actually overtook madame bovary in my affections are you able to say what it is beyond you like books about big books about adultery i do think the thing you said it's the personal and the political and the way that they're interwoven um which is all of life isn't it and i think it's the search for meaning because i think whether or not we or whether or not i 
am consciously aware of it. I think what I'm doing pretty much all the time is working out how to have meaning and purpose in my life. And I think that's what most characters in... In fact, probably actually all novels are doing, whether or not they realise it, whether or not the reader realises that that's what they're doing. So I think that's probably why. Adultery, I think, is so interesting. So I have to say I'm obsessed with adultery and people get a bit shocked and I always have to say that it's a fictional obsession, (laughs) an obsession with fictional adultery. Uh, I think I'm interested in what destabilises a person to move from their status quo. And I think that's why Anna Karenina, just that, that hinge moment where... Uh, a, a, a woman is sort of settled with a respectable, quite boring husband, a child. Um, what makes her decide to completely change the way in which she lives life? Um, which is, and I think that's just an endless contemporary question. It's probably been a question forever. Um, and I think as well, adultery is interesting. So people start behaving really badly, and and often, um, often people who in every other way are, um, I don't know, sort of quite good, will start behaving so terribly. I just find I find it endlessly fascinating. As if it's a sort of valve in some way. As though, something yes, gets let as out, though love justifies truly awful behaviour. Um, and then the, the, the sort of the idea then that the... The, 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 the adulterous couple, they've seen each other tell terrible lies, but they didn't mind because that was to be with them. But then when they embark on this new relationship, it often goes horribly wrong because effectively, once they get over the sort of the goggly eyed bit, they're stuck with someone who's a liar and a cheat because they lied to someone else. You know, it's that that sort of idea. So we forgive our love interest, terrible behaviour when they've done it to be with us. And then it gets a little bit shocking when when we think they might do it again to someone else. Robert, your your work has ranged over a lot of different writers. And apart from translating, um, you've also written a biography of Alexander Pushkin, which I think is being republished this year. Um, and I wondered, I mean, just thinking of what Cathy was saying there about these kind of um, preoccupations of Russian writers, um, obviously there is enormous variation between them. Is there something that connects Russian writers, do you think? It's probably more immediately obvious with the poetry, because the the poets do have a very, very strong sense of a tradition and of sort of speaking to one another across place or time. We always come across this idea, uh, uh, this may be a cliché, it may not be true, of a sort of um, complicated relationship with a homeland, of a feeling that this is a, a country, an enormous country, often in turmoil, that somehow has to find its way into a kind of new form of living. Well, that was obviously very true of 1917, which at present seems to be rather an embarrassment to the Russians. And I, um, I was quite amused this morning. I was um, someone, um, I was receiving, exchanging emails with someone from the Moscow Institute of Translation, who was um, discussing the possibility of my doing something them at the London Book Fair and um, she was sort of mentioning all the different anniversaries of writers that are falling this year and there were sort of ones like you know the sort of 65th anniversary of someone's birth and the 110th anniversary of someone's death and I was at one point said to her I do think you need to realise that in England we just don't take these kind of minor anniversaries Yes. Seriously, in Russia they do. In Russia they're absolutely standard. Mm. You know, there mm. are always conferences are being arranged 
at you know sort of any kind of five year anniversary of birth or death is an excuse for a conference. But you know she did not mention the nineteen seventeen <laughs> anniversary at all. So there is they're it, embarrassed by it because they don't know what to. It's a big problem for them because um, Putin, on the one hand, wants to sort of celebrate everything. Russian, so he's kind of from Stalin to the Orthodox Church, are sort of wonderful embodiments of Russian heroism. Um, but given his close, his very, very close alliance now with the Orthodox Church, it's kind of difficult for him to celebrate 1917 mm. because 1917 was clearly not a celebration of the Orthodox Church. So, you know, the biggest anniversary they've got, they just don't know what to what to do with. Uh, Cathy, when you, I don't know about you, I, I mean, I also read some of these books when I was a bit younger and they seemed so daunting, but not in a, that's probably the wrong word, actually. They seemed something you really wanted to achieve. There was something you could immerse yourself in. But above all, there was something so different. And there was that sense, wasn't there, of reading into another culture, a culture that was kind of quite other. And that went beyond just language and indeed just beyond another century. Did you find that? Yes, I think so. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we like reading, isn't it? Because uh, you want to get to somewhere else, I think. Um, but again, one of the reasons why I think I'm always looking for novels that completely transport me to another time, place, another geography, another um, psychological landscape, but actually that also have the seed of something recognisable within them. Um, and, I, and I think so often the character dilemmas are just completely... Uh, it's, 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 you know, you could be sitting in a cafe listening to your friends talk about what's um, what's going wrong with them, um, but then you're in an entirely different environment in other ways. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Vasily Grossman and Life and Fate, which is the book that you're translating for this this new series. Um, his writer that I know has an awful lot of very devoted fans, um, but probably isn't as well known as, as many others. Just just tell us a little bit about him. He's a writer who began really as a, a journalist. He was born in 1905. He published a fair amount in the 30s. And it's quite odd reading his stuff from the 30s because a lot of it is quite quite dull. And then now and again you just get sort of glimpses of some totally different writer appearing, a much, much more original writer. And I think it's a rather unusual example of someone who just went on writing better and better throughout the whole of his life. He's someone with an extraordinarily steady imagination. He writes about a lot of painful things, but he didn't, he didn't sort of seek these things out. I mean, he he became a war correspondent and spent quite a long time in Stalingrad. He spent longer than anyone else, actually, in any other journalist in, in actual Stalingrad, you know, on the West Bank. He wrote a lot about the Shoah, um, but again, he didn't particularly seek it out. I mean, his mother, he is Jewish, and his, um, his mother was one of the 30,000-plus Jews who were shot outside the very Jewish Ukrainian city of Berdychev. And he was, um, it's wrong to use, people often say he was sort of with the Red Army when they liberated Treblinka. They didn't liberate Treblinka. Treblinka had been destroyed by the Germans a year before, but the army he was with occupied the part of Poland where Treblinka was. So he was in this extraordinary position of piecing together the story of Treblinka 
Um, but the article he wrote in 1944, he gets one big thing wrong with numbers, but basically he understood the mechanism uh, by which the camp functioned with extraordinary clarity in the way that it was able to operate with so few Germans, you know, a very, very small number of SS guards and a large number of sort of captured Soviet prisoners, former Soviet prisoners of war who were sort of second-tier guards. He did write, um, he was deeply, deeply preoccupied throughout his life. He had a, um, a sense of guilt that he could have, if he'd been more determined, um, he could have persuaded his mother or actually just gone and fetched her to Moscow so that she wasn't in the west of the Soviet Union when the Germans were invading. Um, and very, very unusually, this sort of sense of guilt seems to have actually given him a sense of strength rather than weakness, a sort of determination to write about these things. A with sort clarity. of mission in some kind of way. Yeah, mm. yeah, and an absolute sort of clarity about it. Um, I mean, a lot of writers writing about painful things, you feel they're sort of wanting to hurt the reader, that they, you know, they're in pain themselves, and they sort of wrongly imagine that if they hurt the reader, they'll sort of transfer the pain onto somebody else, and they feel they'll feel better. You just don't get that in Grossman. It's a sort of total, total steadiness. That's just a sense that this is a, a story that um, he feels need to be, needs to be told. Kathy, is Grossman somebody you you know? I mean, I know of Life and Fate. I haven't read it. Is he a writer that you're aware of? Not hugely, though. I really want to read him now. Well, exactly. I, I mean, that was really. I suppose what I, I was thinking that this. Looking back to the classics, it's not just a matter of saying, you know, I want to read for the first time or reread something yeah. terribly well known like Anna Karenina, for example, or Crime and Punishment. It is about this sense of discovery, isn't it? And yes, uh, and I was really interested in Robert's point about um, uh, I'm really interested about writing and the processing of pain, and the, that you can, as a writer, transform pain rather than transmit pain is one of the things in general I'm very interested in. So the fact that you made that it is, of course, the, you point really just charges me towards... It's, of a very it's, a striking, sorry. Um, no, sorry. it's a very striking passage I was thinking about earlier today in his, um, in his shorter, more condensed novel, um, Everything Flows. It's about a, um, a man who returns from the labour camps and finds it very, very hard. This is the mid-50s. He finds it very hard to sort of find a place for himself in Soviet society. He eventually ends up falling in love with his a landlady who um, she ends up telling him this. It's actually the most painful passage in all of Grossman. She was a sort of minor official complicit in the, um, in the terror famine in Ukraine in the 30s. And she just tells this absolutely straight narrative of, you know, I saw this, I saw this, keeps just repeating the word, I saw, which is terribly painful. And then towards the end of the book, the main character says something like, um, that I, I, said, I used to think that, you know, what I wanted more than anything else was to sort of be able to forget my suffering in, in the arms of a beloved. But I, um, I now realise that actually what's much more valuable is being able to share one's suffering 
in the arms of the beloved. Kathy, of course, this this is is relevant to you, of course, because your first book, The Last Act of Love, was about the idea of writing about an extremely painful and traumatic event, mm -hmm. the death of your brother, and and how that changes over time. And I'm so interested to hear you talking about how that connects with the kind of fiction reading that you do. Yes, and I think a lot about I I still feel. I still feel a sort of an awkwardness and embarrassment about having written my book. I, when people say, like, oh, I read your book, I always want to say, oh, I'm ever so sorry. Uh, I feel... Uh, uh, I'm here to tell you to stop doing that. <laughs> I do feel a, a, a real uh, sort of skin-crawly feeling that I... That I sort of... Well, again, it's this need to, to process, to transmit, to share, but then this simultaneous worry that no-one will care or that you will make yourself unlovable by being too too difficult, too spiky, too grieving. And I still feel I sort of am living and dealing with that all the time, as indeed I think anybody that has any sort of difficult backstory... It, it, one of the things that we do as human beings is we communicate with each other and we feel a, a, a reticence about sharing what the, those experiences that have shaped us if they are hard and difficult because it, it, it feels like it's bludgeoning someone in conversation. So I think it's a, it's, a very, it's a human dilemma and then I think it's really interesting about how writers then choose to take to the page and the manner in which, the manner in which they do it. You know, and then it's back to, are you transmitting pain are you just bleeding all over the place or are you actually doing something transformative with it which i'm in no sense making a moral judgment about people want to but it's a question bleed all of, over of, the page of, they can i think it's a question a description of, of what i think it's it is like. yes yeah. and, and um of motivation i think or and an intent what you're intent was i still worry about inflict that i've inflicted this story on people but also i do know that i know that when people read it they don't feel like they've just it's slightly the difference between writing and editing writing sometimes felt like i was just sitting down slashing my wrists over the paper but in the editing that it, it, it isn't that i don't think and i think with any kind of uh, memoir writing about grief there is always that that tension about who you're writing it for and whether or not we I'm not just writing any conversation about grief. What's the conversation for and who is it benefiting? Would and it also be fair to say that you have to address the fact that you're not necessarily always going to be able to control that or know the answer to that? Yes, I think that's very interesting because people ask me a lot about whether or not writing the sort of book I've written is therapeutic. And whilst I think that there is a... Um, therapeutic element to... And I think it's I think it's actually to do with... Um, to, to that you're not hold, you don't holding it in your body. You're replace, you're putting it on the page. You know, so you take what you know and then you write it on the page. And there is a release because it is no longer fermenting and composting inside you. You've in some way transformed it into something else. But I also want to be very clear about the fact that it it absolutely is not therapy, and that perhaps writing might be a little bit therapeutic, but publishing definitely isn't. <laughs> and doing public events is not that's not therapy and I think I just always will feel um people often ask me whether or not I think they should write down their own experiences and I always think well yes for you probably but but be careful if it's once you start sharing it and of course then it becomes judged it's a judged thing which is absolutely fair enough and appropriate but it has another really complex level um 
I think one of the things that I'm sort of getting from this conversation is that when you start to talk about these key texts, we didn't really know where this conversation Mm. would go. And it's gone to really, really interesting places just by putting you two together. Um, If you are uh, going to say to somebody, you know, actually look at these kind of writers... You're not allowed to say Anna Karenina, <laughs> but where would you? And you're Robert, not allowed to say uh, Vasily Grossman. Where would you recommend that someone start? Well, I, I mean, I but I really want to read Life and Fate now. <laughs> so. Okay, all right. Am I allowed that? that? Yes, you are. Robert, where would you you tell a sort of somebody who is not uh, versed in Russian literature to to begin their odyssey? Well, I mean, I do love what Katy said at the beginning about. Uh, value of immersing oneself in a long narrative. But I also, at the same time, put the opposite case, that um, Russian literature, we have got very hooked on the idea of Russian literature as being long, serious books. And actually, they have a fantastic tradition of short story writing. Unlike English literature, all the greatest Russian writers, almost without exception, wrote short stories. Mm. Um, someone I remember someone pointing out recently that if you ask even quite well-read English people to name the titles of their half dozen, you know what they think of as a half dozen best English short stories, a lot of people would be just sort of struggling to name them. Whereas, and you know, even English people might find it easier to name the Queen of Spades and the Great Coat and so on. Um, so, Pushkin, Gogol, um, all the great twentieth-century writers—they all wrote short stories. So. Um, I'd like to make a plug for um, another book I've edited and largely translated, which is a Penguin book of Russian short stories. Um, a lot of the stories are very funny. They're very, very varied. And um, I'm sure they will um, change a lot of people's preconceptions of Russian literature. That is a, a great place to start and indeed for us to end but it's been fascinating talking to you thank you so much Robert Chandler and thank you Cathy Rensenbrink pleasure thank you so now we're we're going to stay in the past now Mm -hmm. but it's a terribly different uh, landscape isn't it Will we have been in the salons of Moscow and the steppes uh, of Russia but now we are going to be um, in the wilds of Yorkshire. The wilds of Yorkshire, yes. We're going to talk about the Bronte sisters. I, I have to ask, did you see the BBC film To Walk Invisible? I did. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I thought it was really good. I really loved it. Even um, some of the bits. Well, actually, I didn't like the end. Uh, oh, OK, yeah, no. <laughs> well, I, I quite liked the beginning of the end, like the idea of kind of going that they have this legacy, but I thought it just went on a bit. <laughs> so we saw the whole of the Sorry, parsonage. this means nothing. This means nothing if you haven't seen it, but just to say they do rather sort of bring it up to modern day... Yeah. Uh, Day Yorkshire, which I felt I didn't want to be reminded of, really. I no. was quite enjoying all the, the bustles and the sort of consumption. Yeah, lots of consumption going on. No, yeah. it's, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was amazing what they were able to condense into that one, what was it, about an hour and a half? Is it, a it was, and it was written by Sally Wainwright, who, of course, we, we don't know for period drama at all. And it no. was basically a recreation of the three sisters' life, but it really showed it through the lens of what happened to their brother, Branwell, mm. and it, via his sort of dissolution. And and actually, some people who've criticised it, and I understand why, have said, hang on, we wanted to know about the Bronte mm. sisters. They are important. They are sidelined by history. They had to publish their books under male pseudonyms. Mm. Now we watch a drama about them by an incredibly talented dramatist, uh, and it's about Bramwell. Hang on, what's that all about? And I 
I do understand it. I don't agree, I must say, because I thought what it showed, I don't know about you, Will, mm. was the extent to which the male in that household dominated their lives. The extent yeah. to which worrying about Bramwell, trying to get him on the straight and narrow, he was a drinker, he was a drug taker, he was a liar, really. Mm. Um, they had a father who was you know, portrayed, certainly in, in that programme, as, as terribly hurt by these things that were, mm. were happening. And they wanted to protect him. And they also didn't want to take away the one thing that Bramwell had always wanted, which was to be an artistic success. Mm. And they couldn't somehow eclipse him. And it showed the extent to which they all put their ambitions on hold. And I thought, therefore, it was it was pretty important. What did you think? No, I agree. I think as well, it shows as well that the influence that he had on their own work. So if you read uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, with its depiction of drunken debauchery, you can see that the influence there, and you could see from the programme how much Anne clearly cared for her brother and was worried about him, and for her to then express that in her art. I think it's important to sort of to see both sides of that. Um, Anne Bronte is, of course, for many people, the forgotten Bronte sister. She's always overshadowed by the, those siblings. Um, I have had great fun at the same time as watching that programme, reading Samantha Ellis's book about yes, Anne Bronte. Yes, I was about to say, if only someone would write well, a if book only about somebody Anne. Would, but I, it meant that when I was watching the programme, I was really, really focused on Anne Bronte because I wanted to see how much they would yes, get in there and get ditto. right. And they, I say I was very impressed with what they did get in there. But you know, Samantha Ellis was very much a, a, a fan of Emily Bronte because she was a Wuthering Heights devotee. And she started to question that. And then through that, she's found herself looking more and more at Anne and has written this fantastic book called Take Courage which is all about Anne Bronte but seen through the lens of her siblings and the other people in the house and her father and indeed her own characters. Why don't we ask her herself? Let's ask Why herself. don't you? I'm going to leave the studio right now and head up to her house and have a little chat with her about it. Ta-ta. Hello, Samantha. Hello. Thank you for letting me come into your house. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and making me a cup of tea. This oh, well, is great. No. <laughs> um, we're here to talk about... Anne Bronte, but before we get to Anne, I would talk about your first book, which had to be a heroine, which sort of looked at your the books that you read when you were growing up, those sort of classic books, and looking at those heroines in a fresh light as, a, mm -hmm. as an adult. And in that book, you were a, a big fan of Emily Bronte. Yeah, well, I had always grown up, uh, Wuthering Heights was my favourite book as a girl, and I really modelled my whole romantic life on... <laughs> Uh, try Kathy and Heathcliff, trying to find my own Heathcliff, mm. which is a very bad idea. Um, so a lot of what I was trying to do in How to Be a Heroine was look at maybe whether I had chosen the wrong heroines. And um, I was really swinging between sort of Kathy Earnshaw and perhaps Jane Eyre. And uh, I didn't write anything about Anne in that book. <laughs> I feel quite bad <laughs> about it now. And what was it that made you eventually come around to, to, to looking at Anne's books and, and her life? Well, it was very sort of organic. I was um, in Haworth in Yorkshire at the Bronte house doing a, a reading from How to Be a Heroine and they said, do you want to have a look at some of the treasures? And of course, I wanted to have a look at some of the yes. treasures. And it was amazing. There was a sort of tiny book that Charlotte had made and there was this drawing that Emily had made about a fist smashing through a window and you don't really know what's happening, whose fist, whose window. And then um, Anne Dinsdale, who is the curator at the Bronte Parsonage, she said, did I want to look at Anne's last letter, Anne Bronte's last letter? And I was like, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> um because I'd always had this idea that Anne Bronte was the boring one mm. and that she had sort of 
I mean, Charlotte Bronte had said that Anne Bronte, from an early childhood, she was preparing for an early death. And I sort of hadn't really, I don't know, she just didn't seem very interesting. She seemed like a bit of a sort of wimpy, she seemed a little bit like Little Nell in the old Curiosity Shop. Yeah. Or Beth March in Little Women. One of these women who just kind of is on the edges of the other women's interesting stories and sort of drifts into sort of her early death quite happily. I, you know, genuinely, that's if you read a lot of Bronte biographies, that's the story you get. And that's the story I had. This letter was written a few weeks before she died. And it's not like that at all. She's mm. incredibly full of fire and spirit and hope. And she doesn't think she's going to die. Or she doesn't want to die. And she's really fighting the idea that this has to happen. And she has plenty of things that she wants to do in her life. And she's very sort of clever and self-assured and tough in this in this very short letter. But, you know, it's all there. I thought, well, of course she didn't want to die. She was only 29. Mm. Well, I read uh, The Tenants of Welfare Hall last year as part mm. of a sort of a, a focus to read a classic every month. Mm. And I was blown away by that book. Yes. It really surprised me with how passionate and feisty and strongly political it's a hugely feminist book isn't it about it's a an woman extraordinary who, book sorry no no it's about you know a woman who in a time where women couldn't really leave their husbands mm. says that she wants to be set free you know let, will you let me take my my son and what remains my fortune and, and go and yes. and uh i've just sort of having read as you had done you know jane eyre uh, Wuthering Heights and felt that I didn't need to bother with the others you know mm. but it's an amazing book isn't it it is I mean what's interesting is that she is like the other Bronte heroines you know she starts out she's got this sexy dangerous cad <laughs> Arthur Huntington who's a touch of the Rochester about him a touch of the Heathcliff about him and you know he's kind of mischievous and he's kind of um you know he's he's kissing her behind her family's back and he's taking all these liberties and all these things that you would absolutely want someone to do if you were quite a sheltered young woman yeah you know and uh and he's you know he sort of meets them um straight from hunting with the blood of his prey all over him and, you know he's very sort of visceral kind of uh, sort of figure um and you know he is attractive um and uh, she marries him and and the book doesn't stop there it goes on with her story of realizing that he's an abusive alcoholic not just to her but to their very young son i mean mm. there are scenes of him pouring brandy down the throat of a toddler which you just can't even sort of fathom yeah um and teaching the little boy to swear to be horrible to his mother i mean just really sort of horrible nasty nasty scenes and unable to really understand that the child is a sort of separate person he mm. calls him a uh, a senseless thankless oyster <laughs> um and uh, and he says he's selfish the baby because yeah. he needs feeding and things that yeah, yeah. <laughs> babies do um uh so he's sort of a child himself and she um she leaves him she doesn't hang on to her romantic dream of him mm. she 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 goes as you say she she tries to do it um with permission she yeah. tries to say this isn't working he's having affairs right in front of her and uh you know she tries to just leave and um um, he won't have it. He won't have it. So she um, she goes. It, and it's illegal at this stage as well. I yeah. hadn't quite really understood, but hardly any Victorian women could get divorces. And if they did, they couldn't get custody of their children, even mm. if the fathers were abusive. Um, and even if they were abusive, violent and abusive towards their kids, women just couldn't get those kids back. Yeah. Um, so she goes. and uh, And then... Is this single mother supporting herself as a painter, 
living a very unconventional life on the edges of a village where they all sort of call her a witch and say this is what it's like when women are supposed to try to be different from other people yeah. um and she rebuilds her life on her own terms it's absolutely extraordinary it is a it is a feminist novel it's an, and quite a, as I say quite a radical novel yes. there's an amazing sort of you know strength that comes from that character and I found so after reading that book I thought well now as you did from reading that letter feel completely differently about this person yeah so it was great fun to be able to read your book and find out more about her as a person and what you've done is to sort of is to show her through her relationship with her siblings with her father with the other people in the house uh, even through her characters as well was, yeah. was there a reason why you chose that sort of approach to well I mean one thing that should be said is that the there isn't much of her in mm. terms of there are only five letters that survive and there are hundreds and hundreds of Charlottes, for example, because she was a survivor Charlotte, so yeah. there was just more. Um, I was just interested in how you sort of turn yourself into a different person, how you go from being, I mean, Anne was the baby of the family. She was also supposed to be very asthmatic and, we and weak, delicate kind of little girl, lost her mother at 20 months, um, was seen as this sort of angelic, little figure you know by mm. a lot of her family and then she went to become this incredibly tough writer who really I mean it's not just that the Seventh of the World Bell Hall was so tough it's also the way she defended it mm. you know she writes this blistering preface to the second edition and um, she, she, she refuses to be sort of pushed into revealing whether she's a woman or a man she says women can write whatever they look like as well as men can mm. if a book is good it doesn't matter who it's by it's a very powerful kind of piece of piece of writing about writing um and how does she do that and i was interested in how we look at the people around us and learn from them and take things from them and change things about how they do things mm. also through the book you you talk about yourself you sort of reveal <laughs> about how the, the the reflections of anne's life are on your own was that always in your mind as how you were going to write the book or did it happen organically or um well I, I i found it a very intense experience to be connected to and sort of haunted by a sort of biographical subject mm. and I, I didn't really want to write a straight biography I, I was interested in how we allow books to change us and people to change us and so it felt like it would be a bit wimpy if i didn't sort of talk about <laughs> how it changed me too um and I also was very, very early on, I'd seen this um, uh, photocopy of an annotation that she had um, made, Anne had made, in a copy of her Bible. So in, she had decided to read the Bible as an adult straight through um, to see what she felt about it, which is exactly the kind of thing she was always doing. She was always just trying to sort of go, I'm going to see how I feel about it now and yeah, yeah, yeah. really think about it. And uh, she says something like, um, what, where and how shall I be when I have got through? And I just thought that was really a good question to start yeah. with. Um, and, and also it, it turned out to be quite a tumultuous year for me um, <laughs> in that I, I fell in love um, and got married, um, and uh, which was very unexpected. So I, I suppose I just wanted to um, explore that. But I actually, uh, I sort of halfway through thought, well, okay, so now I'm doing things that actually Anne Bronte didn't do. She didn't get married. Yeah. She may have. I think she did have a love, uh, a man that she loved, um, William Wakeman, this uh, very um, genial and lovely sounding, classics loving curate um, who very sadly died from, from 
cholera that he caught when out visiting the sick. That's mm. the kind of nice man he was. Um, but uh, but she didn't, you know, she, she they never had a they never had a relationship. They were never able to get married. And and I sort of questioned myself because I wondered whether you know it was relevant that I had done these things. But actually, she writes so much about marriage. Yeah. She writes about relationships and she writes about how men and women treat each other. So I felt that there was. A lot that I was learning from her. It was mm. very useful to be reading her again and again while I was doing these things myself. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about the title as well, Take mm. Courage. First of all, if you could tell us a bit about where that comes from and why that was such an important, I guess, touchstone for, for this story. Well, I found out that those were her last words. Um, so she was she's the only one of the family not to be buried in Haworth in Yorkshire. She's buried in Scarborough. Um, she had gone there to try the sea cure for her tuberculosis mm. and when she got there she realised it wasn't going to happen and she wasn't going to recover and she was there with Charlotte and Charlotte's great friend Ellen Nussie and the three of them were in this sort of lodgings um, she was lying on a couch looking out to sea um, she loved the sea and she loved Scarborough it was a place she really loved and she, she, she particularly wanted to go there because she loved it not just because it was a place mm. one went for the cure um and uh and her last words were take courage charlotte take courage which i just thought was not what you would expect when you read about her mm. in in some of the biographies i've read so far i had read so far and i i was just interested in this idea of what it meant to take courage and she she lived with her diagnosis for um a good uh five or six months she knew she was dying and her, she had lost Emily and she had lost Branwell um, in a very short space of time and she knew what it was like to have consumption and what the last stages were and she also knew that some people did survive for a long time you mm. know it wasn't necessarily a, a speedier death as, 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 as it had been for her, her sister certainly um, so I was interested in how you take courage and, and I was also interested in the effect that it might have had on Charlotte because actually after Anne's death she wrote she wrote Villette which mm. is um an extraordinarily courageous book and much bolder and more I'd say feminist than her other work um and more conflicted and I think I think Anne would have loved Villette um mm. so I was interested in the fact that it, it 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 did have an impact now that you have been through this journey with her and your own journey of course, <laughs> as you said um and your focus, as I said, with your previous book on on these literary heroines, do you do you have a favourite Bronte now? Have you landed firmly oh. on Team Anne, or or you sort of have a greater <laughs> respect for all of them? Having learned, um, I think I have become a bit Team Anne, but I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to stop loving um, the other two. And I also, I suppose, I feel like you you need you need certain books at certain times, and they yeah. change. As we, as we, as you change through your life, um, I mean, when I, when I read, when I read *Wuthering Heights*, I was, I was quite awkward and shy and anxious, and I needed Kathy Earnshaw to pull me out of myself and make me feel that I could be sort of wild and passionate and, you know, a bit horrible actually. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe not to be so nice. You know, it was yeah. kind of a good thing. Um, that might not be the message I need now, but yeah. it was then. Um, Jane Eyre you know, has been helpful to me at other times. And I feel at the moment I'm finding 
um, Helen from the Tenth Welfare Hall very helpful to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, not least because she's a mother and I'm expecting a child, and so actually that also sort of ended up being quite a helpful thing to have read yeah. um, and reread over that whole um, beginning to think about all of that. Um, but I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm ever gonna stop sort of swinging between them. The thing about these, I think, the Bronte heroines is that they're they're so complex. Yeah, you just go, but. You just keep going with them. You just keep going backwards and forwards with them. There's no end to, to it, really. But is that, I think, part of the appeal of, of the classics in general, is that those books, you can keep returning to them. They've still yes. got so much more to say. Yes. Um, and I think, especially as you were saying, that at different stages in your life, they will play a huge part in your own development. I think so. I mean, I, I, I sort of, I'd love to kind of know what it's going to feel like to read these books when I'm 80, you mm. know? Um because I think it will feel very, very different. But I don't know yet. I'm not there yet. <laughs> We've got plenty more years to go through. A little, through a little way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Samantha, thank you so much. It's been great to talk oh, to you thank about, you. not just Anne, but all the Brontes. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Will is making his way back to the studio, but while he does, I have another guest, and my guest is Edmund Gordon, who is the biographer of Angela Carter, who has written the first biography of Angela Carter since her death in 1992. So, Edmund, we've spent the whole of this podcast so far talking about classics, mm -hmm. and I think it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that Angela Carter is a modern classic. Her works earn their place on the shelves of the modern classics. Would you agree? I mean, I'm assuming I, you I would. I absolutely would agree, yes. I, I've spent uh, five years writing about her and wouldn't have done if I thought she was a flash in the pan. Um, I think she's survived tremendously well. And, uh, I mean, I think it's partly her linguistic vitality which has made her survive that well, enabled her to. Um, and the fact that she, you know, she wasn't interested in sort of the minutiae of uh, social observation she was writing. She was interested in the underlying structures of society. So those have remained more or less unchanged since she was writing. Let's just put a little bit of, of context in uh, for people who are, well, may have read Angela Carter some time ago, may be new to her. Um, I suppose if I were to, the books that have stayed with me as, as titles would be Nights at the Circus and, and Wise Children. But she was very prolific, wasn't she? She was. Well, she wrote uh, nine novels, four collections of short stories, uh, an enormous amount of journalism. Um, plays, radio plays, film scripts. Uh, she was extraordinarily prolific. And in fact, most of that work was crammed into the early part of her career. She sort of slowed down uh, in her 40s. And we should say that, that her career was cut short. She it, died it was very prematurely, really. Yeah, it's very sad that it was truncated. And just um, as she wrote those two late comic masterpieces, which you've mentioned, Nights at the Circus and Wise Children. So she was sort of entering a new phase of her writing, really. Mm. She was becoming more expansive, funnier, happier as a person as well. Tell us how you first came to be her biographer. Now, I'm just going to come right out with this and say, and say it. Two things strike me. One, you're a man. I am. Uh, and you do cover this in, in the book. You, you talk a little I bit about that. I admit to being that. a man, You admit yes. to being a man. <laughs> yeah. um, not what everybody would have imagined for Angela Carter's first biographer. Certainly. No, absolutely. And you're also, um, you're not of her, her generation or indeed my generation. You you were not contemporaneous with her. You were probably not reading her when she was still alive. That's absolutely right. I, I was uh, nine years old when she died. Um, and I think that there are advantages and disadvantages which 
come with that, which come with both being a different gender and of a different generation. I mean, I obviously didn't live through most of the historical period that she uh, lived through. I never knew her. I, I had to go to other people's impressions to get my sense of what it was like to be in a room with her. Um, I think there is also a sort of useful critical distance that can come with that, though. And it meant that I was not, you know, I wasn't relying on my own memories. I was checking things out. I was reading around things. I was um, not sort of wrapped up in my own biases, perhaps. You were a fan, and weren't you? I was you? a fan. You I was an absolute fan, fan yeah. You discovered her books when? Uh, I discovered her books after leaving university. Um, I did, just after I left university, I did an Arvon Foundation writing course taught by... Ali Smith, and I was... you know, That's, a, that's a good teacher to get. It's a very good teacher. Well, I did the course because I knew that she was teaching it, and um, I was incredibly nervous and sort of didn't speak for the week. And then on the last day of the course, I said to her, you know, who's, who's your favourite writer? And she said, Angela Carter. So I thought I'd better check out Angela Carter. And then I moved to Berlin shortly after that, where I found a copy of The Magic Toy Shop Carter's second novel in a second-hand bookstore. So I bought that and was absolutely blown away by it. And she wasn't remotely what I'd expected her to be because I had read some of the academic literature on her. I'd heard the way she was spoken about. And she's spoken about as if she was... She's often... I mean, there has been some great writing on her, but she's often spoken about in a very humorless way, as if she was a very didactic kind of haranguing writer, as somebody who wrote very didactic feminist allegories the whole time and nothing else. And so I was amazed by the comedy, the imaginative wildness, the, the linguistic... The theatricality. The theatricality, yes. absolutely. Uh, and was very drawn to her and read as many of my, her books as I could get my hands on over the following months and years. Um, and then I met Susanna Clapp uh, when I'd, I'd started reviewing books and I'd sort of formed a bit of a career as a, as a freelance critic. And I met Susanna Clapp, who is the theatre critic of The Observer, and who's also, although I didn't realise it at the time, Angela Carter's literary executor. And we started talking about Angela Carter, and I asked why a biography hadn't been written, and things sort of went from there. And Susanna Clapp herself put together a, a, a very charming book a couple of years ago, didn't yeah. she? Of sort of postcards and correspondence from, from Angela Carter. Yeah, absolutely. It came out in 2012. It's called A Card from Angela Carter and it's a lovely little book. It's, um, it is a memoir of, of their friendship and of Angela um, structured around the postcards that Angela sent Susanna while she was sort of abroad most of the time. Now we, we should say this, this is such a help for a biographer. There are many things that are extremely difficult but if you have a subject who is a prolific letter writer, mm. that really helps, right? It helps enormously. Um, and Angela Carter was a prolific letter writer, although only really during periods when she wasn't based in England. So I was very conscious when I was writing my biography that there were periods when she was away which I could tell almost exclusively through her voice, just through quoting her uh, and in great detail. And then the periods when she was in London, which of course she was most of the time, uh, I had a lot less detail on because she sent, you know, she fired off postcards occasionally, but mainly she just spoke to her friends on the phone. So there wasn't the same kind of of uh, archive. You called your book The Invention of Angela Carter, which is a very clever title because it gestures in lots of different directions. Just explain a little bit more about that. So I called it that. I, that, that was not my... Um, 
when I started work on it, I did not intend to call it that. Are you now going to reveal that a, an awful editor made you do no, it? No, no, not at all, not at all. I um, It was my idea, but it sort of came about halfway through because I became increasingly aware of the ways in which she has been invented by people who've written about her, by people who've known her, uh, how people are extremely possessive of her memory and have created her in a number of different ways, from this sort of fairy godmother figure um, to this very angry and didactic writer um, to this politically correct... I mean, there's a piece that John Bailey wrote for the New York Review of Books where he accuses her of always coming to rest in the right ideological position, which is for us, I can see, is um, the opposite of what she did. Well, so interesting. I mean, you cover this you know, a lot, of course, in the book. Her very, um, well, it's a, a sort of ambiguous and ambivalent um, relationship with, with feminism, with the feminism of the day, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I don't. I, I think that she was um, a consistent and very strong feminist. I think what she was not was a sort of mainstream feminist. Mm. She wasn't a... She wasn't somebody who um, who liked to be a part of any group, really. She didn't like to follow any party line. And if she felt that people were being too ideologically right on, she would say something to wind them up. Uh, and I think a lot of that has been lost in how she's been written about. She um, she enjoyed winding people up enormously, and she was uh, she was extremely provocative in, <laughs> in most of what she An wrote. Adept at it, yes. yes. And the, the, I mean, the other part of the title is that she, you know, it became increasingly clear to me how she had sort of created the kind of person she wanted to be. The kind of woman that she was was a kind of woman who really didn't exist for the generation before hers. And she invented this person and decided to become this person and sort of performed the role of this person. And what in, was that person? What would be that person's key sort of characteristics? I think somebody who is, who is very conscious of uh, the ways in which society, the forces acting on her personality and conscious enough of those forces to resist those forces. So somebody who's not, um, you know, somebody who is aware of what she called the myths that underwrite our existences, those being, you know, femininity was one that she did speak about a lot, um, but somebody who was free in that sense, somebody who could live um, a free life which was not, th a script that was not written for her. Mm. Um and, and somebody who was rude and funny and warm and, and uh, you know, politically very left. And at uh, that time, I mean, in all sorts of ways, personally, politically, creatively, professionally, that, as you say, was not easy to do. I mean, it required mm. a fairly significant break with her family, didn't it? It did, it did. And I think one of the saddest uh, aspects of her story is the relationship she had with her mother which was extremely close when she was a young girl uh, her mother was was very um indulgent of her but also very possessive um and sort of you know slightly weirdly possessive in that she wouldn't allow her to go to the bathroom on her own until she was 11 she made her leave the lavatory door open she dressed her uh, almost into her teens and angela as a teenager sort of had to forcefully reject this um, and you know designed this personality for herself which was sort of the opposite of what her mother wanted her to be she her mother was socially very conservative and so she became somebody who swore a lot and smoked and um, you know dressed like a beatnik as a teenager and subsequently in all sorts of different more or less flamboyant ways and um, the relationship with her mother sort of carried on until Angela left her husband and her mother was so horrified by this that she just stopped talking to her 
and then very sadly died almost as mm. soon as Angela had left her husband. So there was this absolute severance in their relationship. That early marriage is is fascinating too because, as you say, Angela was just really wanted to, to, to not be conventional and mm. yet she made a very early marriage mm. and in some ways sort of performed the trappings of, of, of marriage but it, it just she did. didn't well, she, sort of work out. She took, those, she took those trappings that she liked. I mean, she enjoyed cooking, she enjoyed decorating so she threw herself into those with gusto. Um, she did not enjoy cleaning so she never did much of that. Um, the marriage, I mean, it, it was a conventional thing to do in many ways but he was, by her parents' standards, not a conventional man. He was uh, very into the folk music scene. He was a sort of beatnik. He, you know, wore duffel coats. And uh, she did it partly because she saw marriage as the only way of escaping her parents' home. Um, when she talked about going to university, she talked about going to Oxford, and her mother said, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, we'll buy ourselves a flat nearby so that we can stay close to you. So Angela quickly dropped at all talk of going to Oxford. Um, so I think that the marriage was largely that, uh, an escape route from her parents' home. And then, of course, as a young woman, and this informed a lot of a lot of what happened to her after that, uh, she went to Japan, didn't she, mm. for an extended period, lived a, a kind of really quite amazing mm. romantic, erotic life, we might say, for, some, for, for many years, actually. Yeah, well, that, the first, the original trip to Japan lasted just over two years, and then she went back for a little bit. Um, but she, what happened was she received the Somerset Maugham Award for her third novel, Several Perceptions. And the rules of the Somerset Maugham Award state that the money has to be spent on travel. So she went to America with her husband and then she flew from San Francisco to Tokyo and her husband returned to Bristol where they lived. And she basically uh, never came back. She basically never came marriage, back. So, no, absolutely. Yeah. She just sort of wrote him a letter ending it uh, and stayed there, yeah. Um, and, and, you know... It opened her up intellectually and artistically hugely that period. She started writing what I consider to be her best books around that period. The I mean, we, We've been talking a bit uh, about her, her personal life, her family life, um, but what struck me was how early she knew that she wanted to be a writer, even though it didn't success didn't come immediately. You could argue, I think you do argue, she, she never really had the success, all of the success that was due to her. Um, but she was... At once a total one-off, but she was also swimming in this fantastically vibrant kind of literary sea. I mean, there were the, the portrait that you paint of writers who she talked to, Salman Rushdie, mm. Kazuo Shiguro, for example, supportive editors, agents. It, it was it's a very fascinating scene of a publishing culture. It is. It is absolutely fascinating, and it's um, you know, there's there's nothing quite like it now. I think, but she was slightly older than a lot of those writers. She was slightly younger than the likes of. Well, she was a fair bit younger than Anthony Burgess uh, and people like that. And then she was a bit older than the likes of Salman Rushdie. They Martin were great Amos. fans of one another, weren't they? They she were. She thought he was... The, uh, yeah, she and Burgess and she and Rushdie. Mm. Um, I mean, she thought that Rushdie was the greatest British writer. Um, and she and Burgess were great admirers of one another. I mean, you know, the writers who were interested in... Um, in imaginative exuberance, linguistic exuberance, more than they are in social observation and, and strict realism. And there weren't, weren't many such writers around when she started. Uh, Burgess was a bit older than her and somebody who was flying that flag. Um, but she really carved out her own niche in the 1960s. And then writers like Rushdie um, came along a little bit later in the 70s, and she was sort of you know, she was somebody who was uh, who was already doing that, who, who had blazed that trail before them. 
And we, of course, from our vantage point, tend to think that it was always there, this thing we now call magic realism. Mm. Um, but of course, we wouldn't apply that label straightforwardly to Angela Carter, but there are certainly elements mm. of that in her work. Um, I wanted to just ask you a bit about the writing itself. It's impossible always to sort of sum up a writer, but she brought us fairy tale. She brought us eroticism. She brought us sort of danger and menace. Mm. Um, and as you say, there's no... Um, there's no sort of very straightforward social observation, and yet they are books of society. Mm. Hard to sum anything up, but if you could say what her sort of, what defines her, what her achievement was, what might you say? That, that is a difficult question. <laughs> I think that her, uh, I mean, what defines her is um, is this exuberance. It's a term I keep mentioning, but it's, it's a refusal to be neat, a refusal to be uh, tidy or to um, write according to any template and a constant um, pushing at the bounds of, of what's acceptable really, of what's tasteful. I mean she you know, her books are in bad taste a lot of them mm. and I, I admire that very much about her um, but they're sometimes scary and sinister, they're sometimes um, very very funny, they're always intellectually brilliant I think uh, and they are always extremely stylish she had a prose style which is just unparalleled she had a gift for metaphor that's extremely rare and that's throughout her work she was ad admired during her career but possibly as I said not to the extent that, mm. that she is now or should have been it's taken 25 years for this for this bi not your biography mm. you haven't spent 25 years writing it but it is the first um, mm. you very generously at the end of it sort of open the door you say let this just be a sort of first step do you yeah. think we are coming to recognise the influence of Angela Carter on writers, for example, like Ali Smith and her, her place in literary history? I think people have been recognising it for a while and a lot of writers of the generation below hers, such as Ali Smith, Jeanette Winters and Sarah Waters, um, have acknowledged her influence. Um, I think, you know, it's not so much that I open the door. I think the door is open and my, my book will inevitably not be the only biography. Um, and I think inevitably, you know, my, my book is a version of her life and there will be other versions. And um, well, I'm very interested in seeing those other versions. So, yeah. And you yourself, have you anyone else in your sights? I haven't, no. I think I'm going to take a break from uh, biography and write a shorter book because I spent five years on this and it does seem a large chunk of a life. Or something. Well, I must say on a far more prosaic note, there was a point where I was reading the book and I think you had very, very early on in Angela Carter's life and you'd looked at some sort of, I don't know, summer job she was doing mm -hmm. and gone through their kind of wage bill to work out, you know, what she might have been being paid. And I thought, this is above and beyond the call of duty. <laughs> and I think your eventual thing, you said something like, I couldn't find anything. So you've gone through all this sort of yeah. not to find anything. That is the biographer's life, isn't it? it? Is. In it's many a ways. Very strange. It's life. a slog. And you do end up, it's a slog. Well, I mean, it's a fun slog a lot of the time, but you do. Not end at up... those moments, though, I would suggest. No. I mean, you do end up, you do end up sort of living somebody else's life as much as you're living yours for a long period. And that's a very weird thing to do. And, and I guess you carry on doing that to an extent. To an extent. I mean, I'm beginning to forget. I've stopped dreaming about Angela Carter, which is a great, <laughs> a great relief. <laughs> Edmund, thank you. I, thank the, you the, very the much. The book's really terrific. A terrific piece of scholarship and very, very engaging. Thanks so much for thank coming you very to much. us about it. I have made it back to the studio just in time to say that's it.
that, that is the end of, uh, of our show for this month. Thank you to all of our amazing guests, Cathy Renson-Brink and Robert Chandler, Samantha Ellis and Edmund Gordon. We will actually be back before the end of this month with a special interview for Chinese New Year. I'm not going to say any more now. You will have to tune in and find out what. Uh, but in the meantime, if you like the Vintage Podcast, why not rate or review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on because it will help us to reach more book lovers. And having been picked as one of the 2016's best, we want to be one of 2017's best as well, don't we, Alex? Not one of. The, the best. And we'd like somebody to say, pleasingly long. Pleasingly long. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's all we want for 2017. But thank you for joining us this month. We will see you at the end of January. See you then. 